This is the Realm of Agape Christian Church. We were in a message, What is Complementarian Theology? We were in part one a couple of weeks back. Now we're in part two. Amen. Thank God. Thank God. Turn to Genesis 1 with me. Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. I'm going to read in the New Century Virgin Bible to your hearing. It says, so God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them, male and female. See, the scripture is showing how he created them. What? Both what? Male and female. Amen. God blessed them. He blessed them both. He blessed the men. He blessed the women. Amen. And said, have many children. Can a man have children by himself? No, he needs his woman. I didn't say his women. I said his woman have what many children and grow in number. Fill the earth and be its master. Was he talking to the men only? No, both be its master. Rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is the historical and cultural context that God intended for us to understand how men and women should respect each other? Uh, is the historical and cultural uh, a construct of male headship to be comprehended as freedom to interpret domination and inequality? Is the subordination of women a creation-given construct? You know, the Bible chronicles the effects of that construct and reveals heaven's preferred alternative. So let us continue to investigate what is complementarian theology. This is part two. Don't forget that in this study, uh, a theologian I trust, the author Kevin Giles, um, a pastor who has retired, but God has him writing these um, doctrinal books to help us. He is in the apologetics ministry where he defends holy faith, amen, against false teachings. So thank God for Kevin Giles and everyone who has that ministry. God bless them and keep them. Amen. But Kevin Giles wrote in opposition to complementarian theology as it has been developed and refined over the last 50 years. Uh, complementarian theology is a human construct generated to provide a way to read the Bible so that it consistently speaks of the creation given subordination of women and its counterpart, the headship of men in a way acceptable to the modern ear. For those who embrace this theology, this reading of the Bible seems compelling, but Giles outlines how the Bible is interpreted by those who have put on this pair of spectacles, if you will. Our task in comparing and contrasting the two schools of thought is to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. And you know what the Bible says, the day you hear his voice, what? Harden not your heart. What is the eternal mindset of God? We need to question that. Uh, which theology accurately reflects what scripture is teaching as a whole? You got to look at the Bible, what? As a whole. Don't cherry pick, but look at it as a what? As a whole. Amen. There is no middle ground. People think there is, but there is not. Theological positions must adhere strictly to the following rules. Amen. 
These criteria must be followed. Amen. Uh, good theology. Remember last time we spoke about numbers one through four. We're going to go five through eight today, but don't forget what number one was. Good theology accurately captures what the scriptures say on the important text that speak to the issue in question, right? Accurately captures what the scriptures say. Amen. Number two, good theology explains how what is said in various texts can be read to speak with one voice on the question in discussion. The Bible isn't splittered. No, the Bible is not schizophrenic. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one theme in the Bible, love, agape love. Amen. And Jesus is the one it is pointing to because he's the what? Savior of the world. God wants us saved by him. Number three, good theology draws inferences. That means when you're reading, uh, there is evidence and you can come to a conclusion based on the evidence. It leads you to a specific end, right? We can draw inferences that follow the trajectories scripture itself implies, not what we add in. Because when we add things in, it becomes a monkey wrench and it messes up the engine. We don't need to be trying to add in. Amen. God is the master chef. Amen. And us little sous chefs here on the earth need to stop putting our hands in the bowl. Let God do what he came to do. Amen. (laughs) Number four was telling us that good theology clarifies issues, not confuse them. Amen. The devil does that. Now, here we are at number five. Let's dig in a little more. What is another uh, criterion that we need to consider with regard to adhering to strict hermeneutical uh, processes? Number five, good theology is truthful. A lot of people think they're, they're telling the truth, but their truth has a bend on it, has a bias on it. My God. And usually it's going away from God. If you add to the Bible, guess what? It's going away from God. If you take away from the Bible, guess what? It's going away from God. You can't add meaning. You're going to go away from God. Let God's word be God's word. If it's God's word, you cite God's word. Don't cite God's word with additions or subtractions and then, and then still say it's God's word. It's not truth anymore. Whatever is stated should be factual. Remember that the uh, antagonists in question, the Kostenbergs, uh, the Kostenbergs and all complementarians like them argue that evangelical egalitarians uh, reject the authority of Scripture. They, that's what they say that egalitarians do. They also say that they embrace cultural relativity like to each his own. They also say that egalitarians deny male-female differentiation like there is no difference. Uh, they say that egalitarians argue for undifferentiated equality. All of this is simply not true. They also tend to ignore counter evidence or alternative evidence or misrepresent it. Kostenbergers do that. My God. Which brings us to number six in our criteria for good hermeneutical process. Uh, Number six, good theology has good outcomes. You think God will come in with injustice? No. We serve the righteous uh, judge and there will be no impediments 
shadow of turning, no doubt, no ounce of fear, nothing erroneous. My God, he has an infallible, authoritative word. He's authoritative because he's the creator of it all. Amen. He should know what to say about it. Good theology has good incomes. Check this out. In case of any theology of the sexist, uh, the test is whether it encourages men to treat women as they themselves would like to be treated, according to Matthew seven twelve. Is it good for women is the question. Complementarian theology fails badly in this test. It fails because uh, sometimes men do not like to be told God has made us the subordinate sex. We don't want to be called that, right? You think men want to be called the subordinate sex? No. My God. And sometimes it will bring dire consequences because of that. They don't want to be treated that way, but they don't mind women being treated that way, especially in the history of this, of the development of the world as it is. Uh, consider how faulty theologies were used, for example, to affirm such uh, things as slavery that came from a faulty theology. And what about apartheid? Remember in South Africa? My God, that came from a faulty theology. My God. But remember, good theology should have what? Good outcomes, which brings us to number seven. Good theology usually reflects what is called, quote unquote, the tradition, meaning what has been theologically uh, concluded in the past. That's what we mean by that. God's Bible has been closed. It's been canonized. Don't add, don't take away. Theological traditions can be strong or they can be weak or anything in between. The weightiest theological traditions are found in the creeds and the confessions of the church, which codify what Christians collectively have agreed is the teaching of scripture in regard to what the Bible teaches on the man-woman relationship. No creed or confession says anything on this. All we have is a tradition that exactly reflects the cultural norms of past times. Cultural norms, y'all. Traditions of who? Men. Theologians before the 1960s uniformly spoke of men as, quote unquote, superior and women as, quote unquote, inferior. And... They were often explicitly misogynistic, you know, haters of women. They didn't care about women's rights or anything. They thought women to be susceptible to sin, right, and deception. Uh, both complementarian and evangelical egalitarians, uh, as the theologians together today, thank God, reject such strong ideas, agreeing that they do not capture the teaching of Scripture. Breaking with this tradition is not a problem, especially for evangelical theologians who agree uh, that Scripture must always stand over all other authorities. Now, in this debate, what needs to be acknowledged is that the past cannot offer guidance for the present. Since the 1960s, theologians have been seeking an entirely new question. What should Christians believe about women in a culture that has emphatically endorsed the full equality of women for the first time 
in human history. On this entirely new question, we must turn, of course, to the Bible and listen afresh to what it is actually saying about men and women. Which brings us to criterion number eight. Good theology makes sense of the world in which we live. Again, complementarian theology fails this badly. The reality today is that the best of marriages are profoundly equal and women are leading in every sphere of life and doing it well. Most people, most Christians, and most evangelicals in the Western world that we live in are pleased to see women liberated and flourishing. The idea that women are a subordinate class makes no sense in the modern Western world. Most Christians and most evangelicals believe that affirming the substantial or essential uh, equality of the sexes captures the very mind of Christ. It is a commendable idea to be fully embraced. The world is a better place when the equality of the sexes is emphasized. In one of their better moments, though, the uh, people who are leaders in complementarian thought, the Kostenbergers, they recognize this fact, actually. They say, quote, there is no question that feminism, a modern uh, a movement concerned with the advancement of women's rights and with the achievement of women's complete parity with men in society, the home and the church, has had many positive results since its inception almost two centuries ago. Women's status and experience in the Western world that we live in, uh, in particular, have been altered for the better in many ways. In this way, justice has been served, they said. And many women have been lifted from second-class status to genuine equality with men, end quote. You know, a contemporary theology that opposes the substantial equality of the sexes is not good theology. It is bound to be rejected. Uh, most Christians, including all Roman Catholics and all evangelical egalitarians, uh, now oppose theologies that subordinate women to men, believing that they are mistaken and that they damage the church. And of course, some people are like good old Texas back in the day when slavery was ended. They were like the last station to get the memo. Hence, we have the holiday Juneteenth when they finally were released. <laughs> some people today are yet in sub subcultural ecclesiastical circles. Some churches still subordinate women badly. And there's a stained glass window that they will never get over. My God, because the men in charge will not see a difference. Sometimes they talk a good game of inevitable change, but there is no fruit after years and years and years. They talk about it in many meetings as the meetings are filled with, guess who? Women, you know, and a few good men. Then they try to throw women a bone and say, oh, things are going to change. Things are going to change. And after 50 million offerings, 50 decades later, nothing has changed. We need to make a critical response to what is going on in our modern world because there are some complementarians who are yet resisting what the Bible is completely holistically showing. Uh, because arguing that women are the subordinate sex makes absolutely no sense in today's world. We must question the validity 
of the very core of complementarian theology. Uh, the world is not flat, is it? What is it? Round. People figure that out, you know, and for, forever. Now, anybody say the world is flat, we're going to look at them crazy. We need to aim and consider that the mentality of the complementarian theology system uh, is sort of like saying the world is flat. Somebody needs to wake up and smell the coffee that the Holy Ghost has made. Women are not the subordinate sex. They make excellent leaders, actually. Thank God. Seeking to refute complementarian theology is not an easy task, though. It is a well-thought-out and well-honed theological construct. Most of the men who hold to this theology and propagate it uh, want it to be true. Sometimes it seems that for many of them, no other doctrine is more important. Men would like to believe God has put them in charge exclusively. This theology convinces many evangelicals because it seems to be grounded firmly on what scripture says. When the case is put at Giles chapter 1, we're um, extrapolating this um, good egalitarian thought from, when we look at chapter 1, there's a good appeal against all the strands of the biblical revelation, amen, and in particular to texts that speak of the man as the head of the woman commanding women to be silent and forbidding them to teach or exercise authority in church. Most Christians have no answer for it, and many feel compelled to accept the complementarian position, even if most do not consistently apply it. But in this church, we don't want to just talk a good talk. We want to walk a good walk. Amen. Thank God. Hence, some fire I caught online when they see our church website, they will notice my assistant pastor is a woman. My wife, my God, and how can we have elders who are women in the church? They are questioning me. You are against the Bible. They are spitting, you know, at me with fiery darts. But God has quenched the fiery darts. Amen. And we teach on. Amen. <laughs> uh, we thank God for the book we are going through because God has put this man in the forefront of the fight of good faith. Uh, we thank God because he has written some good ways to refute biblically against false teachings. Um, so what must be done to refute complementarian theology is a return to scripture and critically examine each one of the many building blocks that create this seemingly impressive theological construct. When it is done, we, we, we find every single one of the building blocks, the text quoted, cannot bear the weight asked of them. Uh, this is the approach Giles takes in his book. Giles shows us that not one of the texts or ideas to which appeal is made can stand scrutiny. You know, thank God they have no ground to stand on. Women are not subordinate to men. Amen. Thank God we have to consider that according to God's good creation before the fall. The rule of man over the woman is a consequence of the fall. If we look at Genesis 3.16, you could be reminded of that. It is a reflection of what? Sin. You remember the judge named Deborah? Deborah is a powerful national leader raised up by who? By God, not men. To prophesy means to speak the word of who? The Lord in the power of who? 
the Holy Spirit. And often it involves, guess what? Teaching. And they say women can't do that. Jesus was opposed to the idea that women in creation are subordinate to men. In choosing 12 men to be apostles, Jesus did not make male leadership an abiding principle. Paul endorses as a general rule the leadership of women and their teaching ministry. There was an apostle named Junia. Junia was almost certainly a woman apostle, yes, and we have much uh, to back that up. In Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, Paul undermines the unbiblical power of prideful patriarchy. You know what that is when men are in charge, the fathers, the forefathers, you know, never mind four mothers, forefathers, 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 you know. But Paul, it looks like he was doing that, but he didn't endorse that. Uh, we misread Paul today. First uh, Corinthians eleven three through sixteen certainly differentiates the sexes, but does not subordinate women to men. Uh, they can both lead the church in prayer and in prophecy. And First Corinthians, because Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, there was a lot of problems with this. Uh, the church at Corinth and First. Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 does not forbid women to teach or preach in church. It does not ground uh, the subordination of women in the creation order. Uh, It seems to forbid only women uh, asking disruptive questions. And according to theologians, the text is very likely not from the pen of Paul. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, forbids a woman from teaching a man in a house church setting in a dominating kind of way. Because um, God doesn't want anybody to behave ugly like that, male or female. There is no appeal to a supposed hierarchical ordering of the sexes in creation or for that matter in any other passage in the Bible. The creeds and confessions of the church rule that the Bible does not eternally hierarchically order the divine persons. You know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, like the Father's over Jesus, Jesus over Holy Ghost, it didn't do that. And the constant appeal to creation given differing gender roles for men and women cannot be justified or pardoned. They try to say there's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in that order, and men first and then women. You know, they try to do that. Um, It has no biblical basis and deliberately confuses what is being argued in the word. These assertions uh, that we are making against complementarianism will be backed up by detailed argument and and appeal according to the best scholarship in messages that follow in our current series. Uh, Some of the scholarly support for what Giles affirms comes from many very a respected erudite evangelical scholars. At least seven presidents of the Evangelical Theological Society support most, if not all, of these assertions, including the current president, the scholarly Professor Craig Keener. Um, It certainly does not help the complementarian cause for their leaders to summarily dismiss this scholarship, and some of them do. Sometimes they ignore counter-scholarly opinion. They only want to hear their, their own voice. They refuse to open and honestly debate with informed evangelical egalitarians and to say all our critics do not accept the authority of Scripture. This assertion is simply not true. 
for their complementarian theology to succeed, each or even most of its building blocks must be able to stand examination and criticism. They don't want it to. They cannot stand, you know. Uh, we will examine each part of their theological construct, but let us first be very aware that without a doubt, Andreas, you know, the author in question that we're going against, has committed hermeneutical error. He claims to be the master of hermeneutics, hmm. but he had hermeneutical error. You know how we break the Bible down? Andreas tells us that one of his specialties is the art and science of hermeneutics, as he says. He says he has recently co-authored a book on this. We can agree with virtually everything he says in his appendix on the matter of the Bible being God's infallible authoritative word. We like that, right? Yes. And how he raises prophets to speak in his name. Anything wrong with that? No. Part of their work being to what? Teach God's people what he demands. Anything wrong with that? No, we agree with that. He has some correct ways of interpreting gender passages in the Bible, but he makes nasty comments about and gross misrepresentations of the views of evangelical egalitarians. Uh, no informed evangelical egalitarian is guilty of the hermeneutical sins of which he accuses them. One of their sins, he says, is to give unlikely meanings to Greek words. This is exactly what he does with, with certain key words like kephali uh, in Ephesians 5. It's found. That's where the man is head, you know, the woman. Paul uses the word kephali. It is translated head, but which Paul used to metaphorically teach using the picture of the head of a physical body, which sacrificially loves. Did I say be a tyrant over? No. What? Sacrificially loves and cares for their wives. That's what it really was supposed to be showing. And another word in 1 Timothy, second chapter, Paul uses, authentian. It, or, it, it is ordinarily translated as to bear rule or to usurp authority. Yet a study of Greek literary sources reveals that it did not ordinarily have this meaning until the third or fourth century, well after the time of the New Testament. Essentially, the word authentian means to thrust oneself or viciously attack verbally or physically. Paul did not want the women to do that, especially in, a, in an ecclesiastical setting. Uh, what y'all do in the back alley outside of the house of God, well, that's a whole other story. Call the cops. But in church, y'all not going to be acting like that, no. <laughs> so, however, where Andreas gets it most wrong, the main cause of his error is with his own hermeneutical rule that the so-called two horizons, as he calls these two thoughts contrary to each other, must be distinguished and kept separate. The first horizon is the uh, biblical text, which must be interpreted in its own literary and historical context, strenuously avoiding imposing our modern-day theology concerns or beliefs, especially on gender relations, onto the text. 
I say on to the text. Uh, not out of. See, they put on to. They put frosting on. The second horizon is the contemporary world. Here the goal is to make the right application of what is said in Scripture. Keeping strictly to this rule, Andreas says, safeguards the authority of Scripture. Yeah, we can agree with that. The problem is that all too often the Kostenbergers isogetically read their gender agenda into the text. What are they doing? Adding to the word of God. They do not keep to the rule of exegesis where you take the truth from the word of God. They are steady adding things what? To the word of God. You're supposed to extrapolate truth what? From the word that's called exegesis, exit. Isogesis is the opposite. You're putting things into your, your own thoughts, into the word of God. That's what they're doing when they isogetically read their gender agenda into the text. Oh my God, not keeping to the rule of exegesis, which is to legitimately interpret or read out of the text what the original author or authors meant to convey. They use the process of eisegesis, which reads into the text what their interpreter wishes to find or thinks he or she finds there. It expresses the reader's own subjective ideas, not the real meaning which is in the text. What Andreas tells us is what he believes and what he teaches and not what the Bible teaches. An example of his most egregious and most uh, problematic teaching of his whole book is that he assumes that in the first century there were churches much like today, large gatherings of believers with institutionalized office bearers. He claims that there were leaders who exercised real authority to which others are called to just stay submitted to, and who each week preached a sermon. And of course, these were only men. This understanding of the church and church leadership they read into the New Testament and then seek to apply to the church today is chiefly to exclude who? Women. In this process, they prove what they already believe. Is that how we're supposed to work this? Prove what we already believe? Is that how we study the Bible? We're supposed to come to the knowledge of the truth by becoming intimate with God, and he transforms us by the what? Renewing of our mind. Not keeping our mind the way it is. People say, come as ye are, but people don't want to, you know, change the way they are. They want to what? Stay as they are. That's not what the word of God wants us to do. Come and be what? Cleansed. There's a cleansing. There's a transformation. There's salvation, which means you're lost and you need to be found. But people are groping in the dark and claiming they're walking in the light, the beautiful light. No. The New Testament is made to say what they presuppose about church and its leadership. See, they're making their own truth come from a contaminated Bible. The historical truth is that the first Christians met where? In homes in relatively small numbers where everyone was free to minister and teach according to Romans 15, 4, according to Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16. You can even confer Ephesians 4, 35 and Colossians 3, 1. 
Women led in prayer and prophecy. First Corinthians 11, five. There were no institutionalized office bearers, church gatherings and church leadership in the apostolic age and today are to be contrasted, not compared. My God, authority. Let's look at authority as having power over somebody. Then we're done. Upholding the authority of men over women is the primary concern of the authors called the Kostenbergers husband and wife team. They argue consistently that authority is sovereignly assigned to men by God and women should submit to this. They claim that authority is given to men in creation before the fall and is an abiding principle. They teach that in the New Testament, Jesus placed authority into men's hands. They say that Paul is of the same opinion. They say he taught that because Adam was was created first, creation order indicates that authority rests with Adam and thus all men. For the biblical writers, they say male leaders have real authority to which others are called to submit to. This is the authority they believe should be rightly exercised by husbands and pastors. They strongly affirm that there is no ambiguity. God has given to husbands power over their wives, pastors over their congregations, and ideally men over women in society. The one problem with this claim is that it directly contradicts the teaching of Jesus. Mm, That's who we serve. On six occasions, Jesus said, those who would lead in his community are to be what? Servants, not rulers. You could check out Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. Matthew 23, verse 11. Mark 9, verse 35. Mark 10, verses 43 through 30, uh, through 45. Luke 9, 48. Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. I don't have time to go through all of them, but I should state them. Amen. And, and, uh, and once Jesus demonstrated what this all involved in John 13, verses 4 through 20, Jesus contrasted his understanding of leadership with that of the world, the secular system. In his community, a leader is one who serves, according to Luke 22, verses 25 through 20 and, and 26. Not one who has power over others. Not supposed to be that way. It seems to me that the, that the Kostenbergers and, and most, if not all, complementarians do is uh, endorse the leadership style of this world that Jesus rejects. Uh, admittedly, the Kostenbergers speak of servant leadership but it is not the servant leadership of which Jesus speaks. They say servant leadership is biblical, but not leadership that is drained of all notions of authority. They want men to have what? Authority. And then they add Christian leaders have real authority to which others are called to submit. That's what they say. Their case is that God has given to men authority in the sense of power over and has denied that to women. Their arguments are all too often circular. They already proved their case and nobody could say anything, you know. 
They appeal to the Bible to prove what they already believe, to prove that in plain English, God has permanently subordinated women to men. And it's all a big farce. My God. Let's conclude with this thought. Don't forget that in this study that we're doing in part three, what the Bible actually teaches on women, it's a a study that's going to be looking at the historical and cultural context in which biblical passages were set. The historical and cultural construct of male headship is not to be interpreted as freedom to interpret domination and inequality. The subordination of women was not a creation given construct. And the Bible should not be interpreted in that faulty doctrine. The Bible chronicles the effects of that malady and reveals the better way, the eternal, perfect way of our loving Lord of all, our God, Jesus Christ, the creator of all and Lord of all indeed. Amen. We of the realm of Agape Christian Church pray that the Holy Word of God has richly blessed your soul. To send prayer requests, use the contacts page of our website, www.roagape.org. We need your continued prayers and financial support to maintain this ministry. You can also find a secure means of donating on our website. God bless you.